at this at this time. Ah, good morning again. <laughs> Glad you're here. Um, today we get to study one of the shortest books of the Bible. And uh, you get to hear the longest introduction to any book of the Bible that I've ever written for a sermon. So uh, so let's, let's go. Now I want to give you... Um, well, actually, first, uh, oh, happy birthday to my mom. You can tell her later. I think she snuck out there. She's not even here. She's like around the corner somewhere. But that's okay. It's her birthday. Um... And, and, for, and for my mom's birthday, I want to give you a, a present, and I want to tell you a story that has nothing to do with my mom, and then uh, I'll share a couple really simple lessons from 2 John that anyone can remember, even if you forget everything else. So you got a present, uh, you get a story, and you get some lessons, and we'll walk through for, uh, 2 John just like we do with any of our studies. We'll go, we'll go through the, the entire book. Um, so let's, let's pray. Uh, first, Lord, you, uh, you, you know that we need you. Uh, we need you if we're going to understand anything. Uh, these are, uh, if we're encountering your word, then these are spiritual truths that are spiritually discerned. Um, and we're still so um, weakened by the flesh still. So, so wake up our souls, Jesus. Enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Uh, give us spiritual understanding of spiritual things. And let my... Let my words be anointed by you. Anoint our ears so that we can hear what your spirit would say to the church. Thank you for the book of 2 John. And thank you for this church that we get to study it together. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, so the present is, it's just a piece of paper, really. And hopefully you got one on the way in. If you didn't, there's, there's plenty. Believe me, uh, if you want the kinds with the spelling errors, I've got those too. And i got to give them someone. So uh, see me after. Um, yeah, the present's a piece of paper. The story is how I made it, uh, and the, the, the simple lessons. The simple lessons are these. I'm just going to give them to you right up front. Okay, the church is your family. That's it. The church is your family, and it has some weird family traditions that are passed down that people outside the family don't really get. The church is your family, and it has family traditions that are passed down. The church's tradition, your family's tradition, is loving people. And loving people will take more time, energy, and money than you expect. <laughs> That's it. There's more layers, of course. There's more stuff later on. We're going to go through the book, but those are the basics. That's what I want you to remember if you forget everything else. So you should have a paper like this, a little piece of paper. Um, I didn't print this on the computer, but I did print it. Uh, this is, this is a, your own book of the Bible, limited edition, okay? Uh, if, you, if you see John the Apostle, you can have him sign it for you. Um, and, and, and here's, here's the story. Uh, remember, there's a present and a story and a few simple lessons. I got this idea a few years ago, several years ago, actually, when I was teaching a class here midweek on how we got the Bible. Um, and it became something of a fascination at the time. I ended up uh, buying individual pages of really old Bibles from people on eBay. The Internet's a wonderful place. Um, I, have a, I have a page from a, a commentary on Jeremiah in Latin that's printed on vellum from 1494. That's a really cool one. I like that one. Um, I have a page from the 1613 King James Bible that's pretty cool. 
uh, the Geneva Bible with the notes, the first study Bible ever. I've got a couple pages from that one. That's the version the pilgrims would have had when they came over. Um, they're framed in my office. You can go look at them later if you want. Um, I have a page from a Hebrew Torah scroll, a leather page. That's kind of neat. Uh, and I, I couldn't get anything on papyrus, of course. That's a little outside my price range. Uh, so naturally, I bought papyrus from some guy on eBay in Egypt uh, and made a pen out of a quill and wrote Third John in, on papyrus in Koine Greek, which was fun because I don't know Greek. And it was, it was a project. So you can see that fascination, you know, weird, weird hobby things. But what I didn't do at the time was print a page of the Bible with movable type on uh, an, an old-fashioned printing press. But now I have, and you have it right here, okay? So, so here's, here's the story. Is, um, my, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a printer. He worked for Stanford Press, and he printed stuff, books and book covers of books and things like that, whatever Stanford needed printed, I suppose. Uh, so printing was, and I guess is, in the family. Uh, a cousin of my dad's ended up with a printing press and, and some lead type, and then my dad had it for a number of years. And I remember my dad using the printing press when I was very small, and it looked huge and scary and fun like any machine does that could flatten you, like, like that. And so more recently, in the past few years, I started dropping hints that my dad should set it up again so that my kids could see this big, scary thing. And that's how I ended up with 2,000 pounds of lead and iron in a shed behind my house or something like that. I think there's that. I just blinked and it happened. Um, and my, my dad's been showing me how it, how it works and the internet has done a pretty good job of filling in some of the cracks. Um, it takes a lot of time. It takes a whole lot of time. Uh, each letter, as you know, it has to be, you probably know, has to be set and spaced and put in place. Uh, the first three lines of this took way more hours than I'd like to admit. Uh -huh. Um, but I, I got faster as I went along, a little bit, little bit quicker. Each piece of paper, of course, is fed into the press by hand, and each time if you leave your hand there, it'll crush it into a pancake. Um, and the whole thing has to be a tight fit, all the lead type, the individual letters. Um, you end up shimming it with little bits of copper and, and brass. Some are 144th of an inch thick. And if that's not tight and you pick it up, then the letters will fall out on the floor, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And... Um, yeah, just do it again. Um, and of course, you're setting all of that, that upside down and backwards, too. So there's like a weird thing that happens into your head that makes you read like that. And once the printing comes off the press, you read it and you realize that you're not good at reading upside down and backward. And your D's are B's and your I's are L's and the P is upside down and things like that. Uh, the first hundred printings or so, there was a lowercase L instead of an I and I didn't catch it in time. And uh, how to do it again. And then if you want two colors, you've got to do that again. That's a separate printing. Which brings us to 2 John. It's the shortest book in, uh, by verses. 3 John is actually the shortest by word count. So you can decide which one's really the shortest. You know, It's 3 John. Um, and this being the shortest book by verse allowed me to print an entire book of the Bible using a completely obsolete technology, unnecessary, no matter how you look at it, and it took way more time and effort than necessary. It took a long time. Um, part, of, part of this is because the process just takes a long time and I'm not good at it. Um, the letters are tiny, and part of it was because the press is in a shed without any air conditioning and because I did most of this in June when we were getting those triple digits day after day. So I'd only do it early in the morning, and it took several days until I actually put ink anywhere. Um, and then there's all the fine-tuning. It took time, okay? So this whole process, 
It's been really interesting for me. And I, and I promise this has something to do with John. Because um, I know that I'm, I'm, I'm engaged in something with my hands that, that would have been interesting to uh, my grandpa. Uh, he died when I was nine. And of course, some of the equipment was his. Uh, some of the tools he built himself because he was that cool. Uh, you know, and so th there's an element of nostalgia. There's an element of, of knowing that you're um, walking in, uh, well, what the Bible calls tradition, right? That's a Bible word. And, and there's something in a true tradition that feeds the soul. Uh, walking in the way of your fathers, uh, even ancestors that you never knew, it does something to you. We take the bread and the cup once a month, and we are walking in a tradition. We didn't make it up. You know, like the song goes about the creed, you know, I did not make it, it is making me. These things are making us. Walking in these traditions is making us into a people that is connected with other people. Uh, and, and, you know, the Apostles' Creed, it has that, I believe in the communion of saints. That doesn't mean we're talking to dead people all the time or something like that, but it does mean that tradition connects people beyond just your little tiny sliver of lifetime. Well, now we have... We have ancestors, of course. We have spiritual ancestors as well. John being the elder that you see in here in 2 John, right? That's a, that's a title of someone who's passing down a tradition to you. I was aware of some of these spiritual ancestors when I was printing this. I was thinking of William Tyndale. Uh, first to translate the Bible into English from Greek and Hebrew. It had been done for, from Latin before. Um, but he was the first, first person to print the English Bible. And for it, he was strangled, almost to death, then burned. And then later, his bones were dug up and desecrated some more and cast into a river because you just can't be too careful with a guy like that. Okay, so I'm, I'm thinking of that as I'm printing, you know. Uh, now, I'm, I'm sure you have memories of tasks that you did as a child with your parents, with your grandparents, maybe. Um, one of my repeated sermon illustrations that I use uh, is kids in the kitchen, right? My kids are great in the kitchen. They're really good. And by great, I mean they're so, so far not lethal. Not that no one, it's good. Uh, but the, you know, the parents who let their kids help with those messy tasks, they're, they're not doing it so much for the educational value and certainly not for the care of the quality of the end project. But because, like, I enjoy the company of my three-year-olds. I do. I enjoy their company. And I bring them in and I let them do stuff with me. Now, when John writes this letter, he writes to a family, and he calls himself the elder. This is a letter about passing on a tradition with concern for the next generation. Now, there's, there's room to guess and speculate here about who he's writing to at all. He writes to the elect lady and her children. That's on your first line there. And then he mentions later that the children of your sister, your, yeah, the children of your elect sister greet you there at the end. Now, there's basically two, we'll say two and a half, lines of thought here. Um, either this is to be taken at face value, and this is an individual, an unnamed woman who had kids that John wanted to write to and send greeting from her sister and nieces or nephews. So this is a family correspondence that John is, is in. Or uh, many believe that he is writing in code, and he is writing to a church and its members, sending greetings from a sister church and its Members, If you've read 1 John and the Gospel of John with us, you know it's like, that might be a totally John thing to do, actually. He kind of likes those, you know, subtleties and, and things like that. Now, one of the more interesting theories, and I'd say this is the half, there's two and a half lines of thought, right? Is that uh, the elect lady is Mary, 
Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's certainly a chosen lady. And Mary and John were especially close. Um, other than that being a cool idea, there's no reason you should believe that, that is the truth. Now, I go back and forth between the, those two main versions about which one I like best. Uh, but usually, I enjoy resting in the tension between the two. Because when you ask, okay, is this a family or is this the church? Well, the answer had better be yes. The answer had better be yes. And we believe this little letter is the inspired scripture. And while it is not written about you, it's not written to you, it is most definitely written for you. So is, is this book for a family or for a church? Yes. And it's for you and your family, the church. Now we're getting into those simple lessons I said I would have for you. This is one of them. The church is your family. And again, the next simple lesson is your family has traditions. I need you to see that looking at the heritage of the church is like looking at your family tree, your family tradition, seeing where you came from. I've read that tradition, uh, you know, cynically, uh, is, is nothing more than peer pressure from dead people. I don't think that's fair. It's funny, but it's, it's, it's not true. And now, of course, the traditions of men are spoken of rather harshly by Jesus because they had been elevated to the place of divine command and were really just excuses to be disobedient because your dad was disobedient. That's bad tradition. Don't be like that. But Paul, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Or in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, says, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And it's in that chapter that we read from when we take communion, chapter 11. The tradition of, of remembering the Lord's death until he comes. So there, there's a place for tradition in every family. There's a place to love the traditions of your family. And you have a family, and it's the church. And the church already has traditions. You don't have to invent them. Your family has some traditions that you need to fall in love with. The family tradition the, that can become a hobby that will take much more of your time and your money than you could have ever intended when you first thought, this could be a fun way to spend my weekends. It's in verse 5 or, or line 10, depending on you know, your new hand-printed copy of the, the book of the Bible. Uh, it's that we love one another. That's the tradition. We know that's the tradition that John wants to pass down. We've been with him for a while now, right? We went through 1 John. We've read the Gospel of John. Loving each other is the tradition of our family. Jesus' followers, who he made into a family, um, they've been they've called to this kind of love ever since the upper room. It's John's one big message. I'm sure you've heard this story that's been told since the first century about John's last days. I've shared it many times, and I'm going to do it again. Um, as you know, he was the last surviving apostle. Uh, he was the only one of the original 12 uh, that died of natural causes. And he lived well into his 90s, perhaps, perhaps longer. And at the end of his life, he would be carried into the church by some of the young men. He was bedridden from age, but still coming to church and preaching. He would be carried in to speak to the church in Ephesus where he lived. And each time... He would just say the same thing. He would just say, my, my little children love one another. That's his one message. That's what he loved. That's the tradition that he's like, this can't die with me. 
I'm the last one that was there who had Jesus wash his feet and it can't die with me. I have to pass this on. Love one another. That was the tradition passed down to him from Jesus, passed down to the church from John and the other apostles, inherited by you and me as their spiritual descendants who are following the traditions from the epistles. Love one another. You you, you inherit traditions from your elders, and that's how John introduces himself. In 2 John, he's like, I'm the old guy, listen up. He says, I'm the elder, listen. Now, I guess you could call me right now, I'm an amateur printer. Sounds good. Um, Because I really like it, and I've never been paid for it. So, and, and you guys, I don't know if any of you took high school French because you didn't want to take high school Spanish, but you know, amateur, amateur means uh, a lover. It has to do with the person that loves what they do. A professional does something for money. An amateur does something for love. Now, it's really telling that the idea we have of both of these is that one produces high quality work and the other does not. I think that probably has something to do with what our culture values or something. I'll have to look into it and get back to you. But, but here's, here's the thing about amateurs, right? The people with their weird hobbies. And let's just get this straight so we're all on the same page. All hobbies are weird. No one cares about your hobby. No one wants to listen to it. You have to get a job like mine where you have a captive audience and you can tell everyone about your weird hobby right now. Um, if, without that, no one, no, just, no, you don't want to hear it. The thing about hobbies, and they're all weird, is that they have to be completely pointless and potentially very expensive. That seems to be clear across all the things that people are into. They'll cost you tons of money. You'll make purchases that no one outside of that little weird click you're in thinks is a good idea. And in the end, there's usually not a lot to show for it, at least from the point of view of people from the outside looking in. Um, Did you guys plant gardens this year? Okay, so like, you, you, you get it, right? I have a book. It's, it's funny. It's called The $64 Tomato. And, and I think I just gave away the ending. I think, I think maybe well, he, didn't, he didn't bury the lead, right? He, he just talks about his gardening, and then he tallies up what it was worth to get his, and it was a $64 tomato. Uh, if you've gone fishing, you have fallen prey to the same system. It is not worth it. Fish isn't that expensive. But that's not why you go fishing, right? The amateur, the lover spends their time and their money and their intellectual powers and energy and, and the thing all on the thing that they love. And it seems totally sensible to them and seems totally senseless when judged by any rational metric. And this is, this is the super simple message of John's theology when you have it on the page in front of you. It's that you love one another. That's it. It's that you make this the thing you love. Loving each other. Loving the, loving the church is your weird hobby. Loving people is your expensive pastime. It's what you do on the weekends. And it's not going to make sense to other people, but it's what you do. Because this is our family tradition. Maybe I should have just said love one another and walked off the way John did. But um, I didn't. I haven't earned that right yet. I'm not the old guy. I want you to see that in loving each other and the people around you, you will, one, be following in the footsteps of a grand tradition in a mysterious, mind-blowing way, you are walking in a tradition. You will come to realize your place in a family with a deeper understanding and joy. You're loving people just like the best of the saints of God have been doing for 20 centuries. And that fellowship is valuable. And the second thing you may realize as you make this your practice, as you love the people around you, you will find yourself doing things at great cost to yourself. 
Uh, you'll be doing things ob obsolete even. Do I really need to visit them? Like, I can send a text message. Loving other people is doing kindnesses for them that they appreciate a little even though it inconvenienced you a lot. That's the tradition. Loving other people will take a long time. Actually, it'll take all of your time that you have left on this earth. Loving people will be expensive. It will require your time and your money that you would rather spend on other things. Maybe, maybe time and money that people think you should spend on other things. We're just talking practically. But when you, when you love to do something, when you're an amateur and you're loving the church, God's family, loving the people around you, is your crazy weird hobby that no one else will get and spending the money and the time will seem perfectly fine to you. Spending inordinate amounts of your own time on the projects around you in this room will seem absolutely normal and you'll enjoy it. When I, when I taught that class, I was telling you about studying where the Bible comes from, how it was made. I read in one place that paper was very expensive at the time. The ink was simple, homemade stuff. Uh, but the long roll of paper, uh, the equivalent of a small notebook, would cost several days' wages. Uh, Romans is Paul's longest letter. The paper alone to write one copy of Romans would have cost the equivalent of thousands of dollars. When you love the church, you write the letter. It's worth it. You're called to love the church. This letter didn't cost John very much in paper. Uh, maybe he didn't have much time to spend to write. He says down in verse 12 in the last paragraph on your page, I have many things to write to you, but I don't want to do it with paper and ink. That's a paraphrase there. But because it's expensive or maybe because, you, you know, there's nothing like being with someone, especially family. John says, I don't want to do this on, on writing because he knows and you know that nothing replaces face-to-face. -face. It's the least efficient way to communicate, but it's the best way. Now, we've got a pretty good idea of where John is coming from because we've read his other stuff. I've given you sort of the main points, love each other, church is family, that kind of thing. Now, let's walk through this text like we would any other Bible study and see the points made in each part of the page. I'll read uh, the first four lines here, the first two verses. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. You see these, this tradition being passed on. He says, I'm doing this, but it's not just me. I passed this on. We're doing this. This is the family hobby. John is the elder. At this point, probably the last living witness of Jesus Christ. He's writing to the lady and her children, or perhaps the church and her members, blurring the lines, perhaps intentionally, between family and church. And the, the thing that makes that line so blurry between family and church is love. The common factor between family and church is love. And John writes that we love in truth. That's not just saying, I really, really love you. Truly, I do. He, he's saying that the love he has is based on a reality that is firm and unmovable. We love because of truth. Love is a decision, it's a commitment that is based on reality rather than whims and feelings. We love because we have really and truly been made family, whether you feel like it or not. Yes, the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into our hearts, and that is an internal experience, but it is also an, love is also an act of obedience, which is why John commands in his other letters, love one another. We also see here that love lasts because truth lasts. The word of God, which is truth, endures forever. We are called to love according to an endless, everlasting truth. 
Next, we see a common greeting in, uh, with a somewhat unusual addition. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. This is the only letter of John that includes this common apostolic greeting. Paul uses it all the time, right? You recognize this because you've read it before. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. John doesn't. John usually doesn't. The addition of mercy is more rare. Paul greets the churches, grace and peace, but when writing to pastors, Timothy and Titus, he includes mercy. Leaders need the mercy of God. Teachers will be held to a higher standard. We shall receive a stricter judgment. It could be that this woman, the elect lady, was in leadership in the church like Phoebe, the deaconess in Rome. Paul says, I rejoiced greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. Now, whether the children were children, just family or a church, John is rejoicing in the progress and faithfulness of someone he loves. Here's another simple, simple family lesson. Spend time with people enough so that you can be happy when you see progress. Get to know the kids in our church and then enjoy seeing them grow. Get to know the Christians in our church, God's kids, and enjoy watching them mature into Christ. You know it doesn't happen overnight, but you know because you've watched kids grow up, you blink and you miss it. So walk with them so that you can see the progress and then rejoice in it. John's, John rejoicing here is evidence of the care he took in loving this family. So be involved with the discipleship of someone else's kids of any age. And, and notice, please, he says, I found this. John did not hear about their progress. He does not say, I read on Facebook that they're doing well. It seems like they're fine. John was involved in the discipleship of this lady's children. This is your call to children's ministry, in case you're wondering. And we're all children. You are called to these relationships. And take heart, because there's joy to be found there. John is rejoicing. In verse 5, it says, And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is John's one big message spread across all of his writings. It's the one big thing he wants to be a family tradition. It's the one weird hobby that, that each one of you is to obsess over. Loving one another. And he explains love in the next verse in a very confusing, convoluted, very John-like way. Okay, so let's read it. This is love. What's love, John? Well, I'll tell you. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning. You should walk in it. Seems like it's assumed that the reader would know John's other writings. Uh, the only commands John repeated are believe and love. These are the commands that are not burdensome that John writes about. Believe and love. You, you read through John's writings. These are the commandments. Believe and love. And these aren't commandments simply to know or write down or memorize. John says these are commandments to walk in. Walk in faith. Walk in love. Love in truth. These are the themes filling John's mind, the traditions that he wants to pass down. Uh, verses 7 and 8, we're halfway through an entire book of the Bible. How about that? Give yourselves a pat on the back. Okay, for, for many deceivers, John writes, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, 
but that we may receive a full reward. The commands to believe and love have opposition. The deceiver, the deceivers are those who would convince you to believe something other than Christ, that would try to convince you to place your hope somewhere other than Jesus Christ. First, John ended with the warning, keep yourselves from idols. The deceivers will provide counterfeit saviors, idols. Knowing that there are lies, we, want, we take extra care to establish ourselves on the truth. We look to ourselves, as he says in verse 8. We watch yourself. The, the world is a dangerous place and the battleground is for your mind. Paul writes to those who stand, take heed lest you fall. The children are walking in the truth and John is rejoicing in that. But that doesn't mean there aren't risks. In times of peace, prepare for war. In verse 9, he says, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Fellowship with God. Abiding in God. Sensing that nearness and that friendship. What a friend we have in Jesus. It comes from staying, abiding. It comes from staying in one place called the truth. Uh, the word for doctrine here just means teaching. It might, it might show up that way in, in some of your own Bibles. If you like it that way, well, then print it yourself. Uh, but uh, now doctrine and teaching, same, same word, same, same meaning. John is referring to the teaching of the apostles. And some of the churches then had actual apostles like John giving testimony. We have the writings of the apostles in the form of the New Testament. Live in the scripture. Abide. Make your home in the teachings of Christ passed down through the hands of the apostles. This is a means of fellowship. God meets with you in his word. This is an invitation to fellowship, but it's, a, it's preceded by a warning there, right? It says there's those who transgress. The word literally means to, to go ahead. Go ahead of, break formation, leave the team behind. Some of the Gnostics, the, the heretics that John saw as antichrists, were obsessed with this idea of secret knowledge available only for the initiates, only for the secret club of Gnostic Christianity. It's like the entire gospel must be whispered from ear to ear, and only you and me know. Okay, they, they were about the hidden knowledge that normal people didn't have access to. And in the process, they left the teachings of the apostles behind trying to get to the next experience, trying to get to that beyond place, beyond the simple gospel. Do not obsess about trying to experience God in a new way. Don't become fixated on what's next so much as, as faithfulness, which means abiding, standing on the word of God. It means going back to traditions, going back to the traditions that we've received from the apostles in the writings of scripture verses 10 and 11 come to the end here it says if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine do not receive him into your house nor greet him for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds uh, traveling preachers were a big thing in the early church uh, one of the earliest writings that we have from the early church era is called the didache it includes rules for church and stuff like that and it, and it gives rules for who you would be allowed to have in your home um these rules became necessary because there were those who did not teach good doctrine, but they really liked the free meals they could get by knocking on people's doors and saying, I'm a missionary. And so they had to have rules against those kinds of people. Charlatans in the church are as old as the church. John is saying false teachers exist. You don't have to feed them. 
In fact, if you bring them into your home, you are sharing in their evil deeds. This may seem a bit harsh, but remember, John sees church as a family. And while John wants his family to be generous and hospitable and welcoming, he also wants them to know that there are some people that you don't let inside your house. Not with your kids. (laughs) It's not safe. There's other people who will use and abuse you or use you and your generosity to do harm elsewhere, either to themselves or others or both. Welcoming someone in and sharing food with them in that culture was a way of saying, you are my family. And John is saying, if they're not preaching Christ in the flesh, they aren't family. John is saying, if you become home base for a criminal, then you're a criminal. You're aiding and abetting. If you welcome the false teacher, that is not only seen as endorsement, but actual participation. And then in verses 12 and 13, he says, Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Verse 12 does seem a bit ironic to me, since I did use a lot of ink to get here. But John's point, and it must be ours as well, is that the church, which is your family, is a lot more than ink and paper. Um, Even the the Bible, which is, you know, the church isn't perfect, the scripture is. So, you know, we want to return to the scripture, but even the Bible, uh, which we reverence and honor as the inspired word of God, the Bible's not the church. You don't have fellowship with your church by staying home and reading your Bible. Paper and pen, or all the technology that has tried to make paper and pen obsolete. These, these aren't the way you do family. You can't have a family if you're only connecting uh, on the internet. You can't, you can't maintain a family over the phone. Yes, we're thankful for those things, but real family is physical. Real family and real church is face-to-face. Um, this is something I think everyone knows. I think everyone is more aware of now than ever, but we know it. Connection, connections exist in person, in the flesh, incarnationally. Everyone has heard the troubles of long-distance relationships. Maybe you've, you've successfully or unsuccess, unsuccessfully been in one. And, and everyone, but no one would replace welcoming a loved one at an airport with an email. Like, no one would want to replace that experience with a text message. One is better than the other. And God spoke to his people through the ages, through prophets and angels and dreams from Genesis to John the Baptist, but none of these revelations can measure up to the incarnational ministry of the Emmanuel, God with us. So John writes, but, but he knows a letter is not fellowship. It's not church. Church is family. And we have traditions that are passed down physically. The traditions we, we uh, engage in, baptism and communion, must be physical. Fellowship is physical. We, we have a weird family hobby of loving one another in person, face to face, and it may cost you more than you ever thought, and it's worth it. Thanks for being here. Thank you for not making me preach this sermon to a camera alone in my office. Thanks for being part of my family and keeping up the traditions with me and passing them on to my kids. Thank you. Let's keep it up. Let's pray.
God, our Father, we worship you. We come to you uh, grateful and humble. Uh, grateful that you have made us sons and daughters of God. Thank you that you have adopted us into this family and caused us to be born again to a living hope. Pray that you would bless your church with your word and your spirit and the fellowship of your family. Help us. Help us love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please.